Hello, it's Saturday 5th of November. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will be rewinding back one whole year to November 2021, the month that reignited international travel in Southeast Asia after 20 months of lockdowns, border closures and travel bans. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So, we've just commenced the 11th month of 2022, which reminded us exactly how pivotal November was exactly one year ago. Yep, 12 months ago, Thailand introduced its test and go entry policy. Singapore stepped up quite significantly its vaccinated travel lanes. And Cambodia laid claim to being the most open country in Southeast Asia. Other developments occurred too although another unwelcome development was just around the corner. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So Hannah, before we start our rewind to one year ago, looking back at November 2021, one year on, what are your reflections on what was quite a dramatic final two months of last year? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and it's funny, isn't it? You know, it was when I was starting to prepare for this, I realized just how much everything has changed, but obviously in a positive way. But I think, you know, when we were back in November 2021, it was very exciting, wasn't it? There was this whole kind of row of every week was another announcement from another country that they were going to be reopening. And, you know, of course, I think that there was some skepticism, some very last minute announcements that really didn't give the trade much to prepare. But there was a bit of a feeling of optimism, I think, that the things were about to pick up that, you know, at finally, at last, we were seeing some kind of movement. How about you? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's, it's interesting, as you say, as we were preparing for this show, just going back a year and a little bit before, because we'll, we'll do a sort of um, preamble into, into why November was so important. But the whole language has changed, the language that was being used by governments, the language that was being used by the tourism industry at that time. You know, we were still case counting. We were still counting hospitalizations. You know, COVID was really center, left, right, and center of everything that was in the news agenda and it was in most people's daily lives. Um, that has dissipated somewhat throughout this year. But, you know, if we go back a year, the virus was very, very much um, impacting absolutely everything that we did. Uh, and of course, that impacted travel. But as you say, November was this moment, I think, this sort of moment of inflection where governments... Uh, realized that it just couldn't go on like this much longer. Vaccination rates were increasing quite a little bit across the region. There really was no reason then not to actually make real movements on reopening. And we did start to see those in Thailand and Singapore, I'd say, were at the forefront. Cambodia too, let's not forget Cambodia. And then obviously the sort of dominoes started to fall, didn't they, Hannah? Apart from uh, Omicron did disrupt things for a couple of months. But, you know, that momentum began last November. Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, it, it was building up November, December. And then, yeah, we had that that speed bump of, uh, of Omicron, which, which set back. Um, but they like said, we, we can talk about that later. So one thing that I, I did, and maybe our, our listeners, some of our listeners might know is every week I produce like this traffic light chart, right? And I've been doing this since February 2020, that looks at um, where are we in terms of lockdowns, inbound travel restrictions, outbound travel restrictions. And it's like a very simple, you know, red, amber, green, from open to shut. And, you know, if we're looking at the beginning of November, um, there was very little actually going on really in terms of inbound travel restrictions. So you had countries like Cambodia, which were open, but with quarantine, 
Um, you had countries like Indonesia that had visa restrictions. Malaysia was only open uh, for business travelers. Um, Singapore, again, we'll talk a bit more about Singapore in a minute, had some limited VTL stuff going on. Thailand, of course, had its Phuket sandbox. But everything else was was pretty much closed. Um, you fast forward then to the beginning of um, December. And that started, that really started to shift suddenly. You know, you're, you're seeing a lot more amber. Suddenly you're seeing more of these schemes being implemented. And, you know, we, we're not talking really full-scale opening with the exception of Cambodia, who just opened to everyone. All the other countries had some kind of restriction, right, in terms of what country that they were open to. But it's amazing. Everything in November just suddenly shifted, didn't it? Yeah, it really did. So let's uh, let's begin in Thailand, Hannah. Now, we've chosen Thailand for a couple of reasons. One, because it, it really did galvanize most of the headlines. It was in the daily headlines discussing how it was going to reopen, what it was going to do, obviously, to the, in real micro detail. But the, the, the start of the test and go, which we'll discuss in a moment, was, was after, what, a four-month um, Phuket sandbox system, which went through various iterations, wasn't particularly successful. The timing was quite difficult. But I think it's fair to say, looking back over time, that the Phuket Sandbox did kickstart reopening tourism in Southeast Asia for all its imperfections. Should we just just discuss a little bit about what the Phuket Sandbox actually was? Yeah, I mean, so Phuket Sandbox was, you know, taking this one island, Phuket, and opening that up to international travel. And now I, I say opening up, but there were still a lot of hoops that travelers had to um, go through. There was kind of hotel quarantines. There was testing, lots of testing to get in before on arrival. It was just essentially incredibly restrictive. And they, they started to move that on. And then they had um, Koh Samui, which they opened up as well. And, you know, like we say, at, at the time, I think we were quite critical of it. And it's definitely, like you say, Gary, definitely had its imperfections. But it was the first one to make that step in the region. So I suppose looking back, we have to give it the credit where credit's due for for doing that. Yeah, I agree. So it started on the 1st of July 2021. uh, And as you say, it was centered on Phuket. This was a time when governments around the region were talking about island reopenings, basically using those as sandboxes to try and test whether you could actually isolate people for a limited kind of quarantine. And then if everything was successful, allow them to travel onward through the country. That was the original kind of plan for the sandbox. As you say, it went through various easings along the way. Uh, Initially, you had to spend 14 days there. That was later cut to seven. Initially, uh, vaccinated Thai tourists couldn't join the project, but later they could. It set a target of 100,000 visitors in three months. And I think it got less than half of that, around about 40,000. But I don't think that really was the point. It was really working out whether it could actually... Uh, manage the new protocols of that era, the testing, as you said, Hannah, uh, managing daily numbers of, of new visitors after you know a long, long break during the COVID shutdown. But it was quite quickly apparent that A, the Phuket Sandbox wasn't really fitting the need. It was introduced at a time when it was quite difficult. Vaccinations were still relatively low across the region. Most countries were still closed in terms of outbound travel. So there wasn't much market there to develop. And also it came at a time when the Delta wave was, was quite rampant through the region, which obviously dampened any sentiment to travel. But it did set the way, I think, for what happened at the beginning of November, which was test and go, Hannah. Yeah, exactly. So 1st of November, the Phuket sandbox morphed into test and go. 
And so test and go was a little bit different. Um, so it, again, you had to be fully vaccinated. Again, there was testing. You had to have an, an RT-PCR test within 72 hours of arrival. There were insurance, reg, you know, insurance requirements. Um, you needed to get this certificate of entry or a Thailand pass, which you had to apply for online. And that was a little bit cumbersome. But there were a few other kind of bits. So you had to stay at um, for one night at an SHA plus alternative quarantine or alternative hotel quarantine accommodation where you'd have one RT-PCR test. You had to then wait out the test result in your accommodation. Um, and once you know that came back negative, you could then go out. But you still had to have then an antigen test on day six or seven. And the other kicker was that you could only... Um, have this applied for 46 designated countries. So again, you know, that's why I was saying it, it, it is not a full reopening as such, because that, you know, if, if you're not from those 46 countries, you're in trouble. Um, but they then had the blue zone. So they had three schemes, essentially, they launched at the same time, test and go, blue zone, sandbox destinations, and happy quarantine. Um, so if you were not from these 46 countries, you could enter via these blue zone sandbox destinations. And there are about 17 destinations. So places like Bangkok, Phuket, um, Krabi, the, the key tourism destinations. Um, but you would have to stay in that destination for seven days before you could travel to other parts of Thailand. And if you didn't have any of those, you could go under the, the happy quarantine program where, again, you could be accepted from any country, but you had to undergo a seven-day quarantine if you were fully vaxxed, if you were unvaccinated or partially vaccinated, a 10-day quarantine. So essentially, you could get into Thailand, no matter whether you were vaccinated or unvaccinated, but just that level of how many tests you're going to have to undergo, which parts you can visit, and how many tests you need was all up in the air. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great summary there. The, the three different, we, we tend to forget that there are actually three different kind of standards for, for test and go. But I think the, the key point that you mentioned, which now seems almost from a different era, is those 46 countries that were designated um, for the test and go program, which were designated as low risk countries. Remember that? Remember when we were talking about low risk, medium risk and high risk countries, all of that is has gone out of the way now. And, you know, this this was the starting point, I guess, to some sort of, I wouldn't say normalization, but certainly a transformation in the way that the talk around travel um, became a little bit a bit more sensible, you know, not not these these horrible categorizations that we were going through at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and the thing about the the implementation, so it implemented, it was it was started on the 1st of November. Um, they started to see immediate results, you know. I, I, I think they saw close to... 80,000, 90,000 in November international arrivals. And compared to what they had previously had, this was a massive, a massive improvement. December, I think, pretty much um, doubled, more than doubled its November numbers. And then, of course, uh, those worries about Omicron were hitting and and Thailand tightened up a bit, these regulations, and they actually paused um, the test and go scheme for new applications. Yeah, so that was Test and Go, which, as we said, began on the 1st of November 2021, a year ago. I still think we will look back in history at that as a kind of pivotal time. But at the same time, that was designed almost specifically for inbound tourism to bring tourists back to Thailand. If we move to Singapore, and we have discussed this several times, Hannah, previously, Singapore's approach to reopening its borders was very, very different. It had the vaccinated travel lane system, which was designed to uh, facilitate inbound, outbound 
and connective travel, which is obviously all three are so important to Singapore. Now, November wasn't the time that vaccinated travel lanes or VTLs actually started, was it, Hannah? But it was the time when it really kicked on. Yeah, exactly. So the VTLs, vaccinated travel lanes, started 8th of September, back to that that big high volume destination of Brunei um, and Germany. Um, and like you say, it was very much about reciprocal travel. And I think you're, you're right, that's one of the key differences really between um, Thailand, which was all about inbound, and, and Singapore, which kind of recognized that they do need outbound and inbound to, to support Singapore Airlines, right? They don't have domestic flights to to, to support them, just to support the, the economy. Um, so they had Brunei and Germany in September. In October, they started to expand that. We, we saw a few more um, European destinations being added, Denmark, France, Italy, Netherlands, um, some North American destinations, Canada, the US. And then from 8th of November, this is when they really started to to kick off, when, when numbers really started to increase into Singapore as well. So Australia and Switzerland were added from 8th of November. And obviously the Australian one, it was it was an interesting one because at that time there were still these quarantine requirements for from Australia. So it was it, it was almost a unilateral opening, really. And it was the same with Brunei, a unilateral opening, an invitation to these countries saying, hey, when you're ready, we're ready for you. We're, we're ready to send people to you. Other vaccinated travel lane reopenings with Singapore in November, South Korea, that was on the 15th. Um, we saw more European countries being added, Sweden and Finland from the 29th of November, India as well. And though India, again, was a, it wasn't open to everywhere. They had to negotiate with India. And then there were six um, designated flights from Chennai, Delhi and Mumbai, which were opened. Again, it was very hard to get into India at that time. But one of the key ones really for the region, I would say, is, you know, this VTL between Singapore and Malaysia, which started on 29th of November. Yeah, absolutely. That I mean, that that's key simply because uh, the close proximity, but also the, the number of flights between Singapore and Kuala Lumpur every day. I mean, you know, is going back over history one of the one of the busiest routes in our region, one of the busiest routes in in the world, actually. So that was very important to to reignite travel between the two uh, countries because obviously we're neighbours. There's just a, a causeway between the two, um, but so many people live and work in each other's countries um, that actually it caused not just damage to the economies, but also to, to family circumstances. People were kept apart for such a long time. And, you know, that, that reopening of the VTL between Singapore and Malaysia was, we saw this huge emotional outpouring, didn't we, also here in Malaysia, as well as the, the relief that actually you could, you could travel back to Singapore again. It was that, that opportunity to reconnect again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was on all the news channels here, wasn't it? It was all of the reporters on either side of the land borders going across on the on the buses themselves and those, you know, very emotional family reunions. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I probably uh, shed a few tears probably that day just watching the uh, <laughs> the video footage, but that's me. I'm a bit of a softie. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I totally agree with you. And I think also you mentioned three other countries that I would just like to follow up on there, Hannah, I think that were very, very important at this time as well. You mentioned South Korea. Well, obviously, we've seen quite a big demand for travel from uh, Singapore to South Korea. You mentioned Australia. I think that was very, very important. I was talking recently in Singapore to Brent Anderson of Tourism Australia, who we had on the show earlier this year. And he said that, you know, that opening of travel to Singapore for Australia really kick-started their reopening. It really brought back uh, family and friends, you know, that travel for love. Uh, and really sort of kick-started Australia's reopening, really. So Singapore, I think, has delivered quite strong numbers to Australia over recent months, but particularly 
in those early days. And then, of course, India. You know, India was very, very important at that time. It remains very, very important to uh, countries across our region, not because it's a replacement market for China, but simply because of the opportunities that exist from outbound India and also inbound to India as well. And we started to see, as you mentioned there, Hannah, it started on quite a low base to, to some of the key markets, but we've really seen in the last 12 months destinations across Southeast Asia opening up their airspaces to cities, not just the big metro cities in India, but also the secondary and the, the tertiary cities. And that will continue. You know, I think one of the stories that 2022 we will probably look back on is the start, I think, of, of major growth inbound and outbound. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, like you say, one of the big stories coming out of 2022 that already we could see back in um, starting to come, taking baby steps um, in 2021 towards the end of the year. Yeah, so I mean, the vaccinated travel lanes, again, I think we were probably quite critical of them again at the time. And it was very interesting, wasn't it? You just had these two very different approaches, Thailand's approach and Singapore's approach. And the rhetoric back then was, was countries were either going for um, kind of travel bubbles, so essentially the the, the, the the VTL style, or they were talking about island reopenings, weren't they? Um, like the Phuket sandbox. And there was a lot of talk about sandboxes at that time. I think we were fed up of the word sandbox <laughs> by the end of the year. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move to a third country because uh, this one sort of came, I wouldn't say it came out of the blue. We'd, it, it had been trailed, but Cambodia made some big announcements. And the, 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 this crystallized in my mind this week because next week, the, the coming week, um, is World Travel Market in London. And I remember last year, last year's World Travel Market, I think, I think you were away one week from our show, Hannah, and I interviewed Nick Ray. Nick Ray was at World Travel Market in London. He was talking about Cambodia's, uh, you know, becoming the most open country in the region. And it was quite interesting at that time because all, most of the headlines were being taken by Thailand and by Singapore, but Cambodia deserved its moment in the sun. So should we talk a little bit more about what, what Cambodia did uh, one, one year ago? Yeah, absolutely. And so Cambodia really were, you know, Nick Ray said it, and I think it's absolutely true. They became the most open country in Southeast Asia. So, you know, if you're looking in kind of October, they had been talking about a Sihanoukville sandbox. So essentially replicating that. And I think they didn't really have the buy-in from the trade. And perhaps they were, you know, just looking around and, and, and seeing where things were going. But they suddenly came out and uh, announced something like the 14th of November, that on the 15th of November, it would waive quarantine requirements for fully vaccinated visitors. Um, and so this was really, you know, the only country at that time who didn't have one, like some kind of quarantine, okay, VTLs didn't, but they were just open. Whatever country you were from, you could arrive, you could come in, um, so long as you were fully vaccinated. Um, you would need to take um, an antigen test on arrival, you needed to take an RT-PCR test um, prior to departure, but there was no mandatory health insurance policy. There was no, you know, having to go online and fill out forms like you still do for Singapore today, right? They just removed everything. They just took this step. And I think everybody was like, oh, wow, <laughs> Cambodia did that. But you're absolutely right, Gary. I think the, the massive shame of it all was that it just didn't 
garner enough press attention. You know, you had this country sat next to Thailand that it is super open. You don't need to jump through all those hoops. And we heard all of the hoops just now that you have to jump through for Thailand, right? You have to apply online and all of these tests and stay at your accommodation and be from these certain countries. And then you can get in. Cambodia is none of that. You just can just show up. You know, I, I think this 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 uh, small Southeast Asian country took everybody by surprise. Yeah, it really did. And I think there are two points. Again, I agree with everything you said there. Why didn't Cambodia make a bigger splash about this? Well, the one thing that you can say um, about Singapore and Thailand during the pandemic is they talked about this relentlessly and they put their, you know, their senior figures, their prime ministers usually led the discussion online. It was in the media all the time. Even when they weren't going to do anything or they said they were going to do something, they weren't sure they were going to do it. It it just generated headlines all the time. So kind of, I think in the news media, people were just waiting for for what happened next. And it was easy news, pretty much. You know, journalists around the region were just responding um, to how governments were were pumping out their, their communications. Cambodia didn't really do that and hasn't really done it since. It's basically made this decision, almost as you say, almost overnight. And then just sat back and let something happen. Uh, and it just, I think it does show you that whatever you think about government communications, however you think that they are contrived or they, you know, what purpose is, is, driven, is driving behind them, they do actually have value in terms of gaining media exposure. And as we've seen as a result, attracting tourists. Yeah, I mean, Singapore and Thailand, Thailand, you know, TAT in particular, they're PR machines, right? Every every week, there's there's a new story, there's a new initiative, there's a new campaign, I mean, whether, whether that gets accomplished or not, you know, whether it's just an idea or whether it really happens, like you say, Gary, that, that people, people write about that. Cambodia just didn't carry the same weight of it. And I think even to today, really, there has still, I think Cambodia and Hopefully, some of our our previous speakers from Cambodia, like uh, Jacques Guichandou and um, Nick Ray, will agree that I think that there's still a lot more that Cambodian government can do to highlight visitors coming to Cambodia because, yeah, it's it's such a, an amazing country and they did so well during the pandemic. You know, let's not forget they're on something like their, I think it's either their fifth or sixth booster dose <laughs> right now. They've got this super high vaccination rate. Um, it's one of the highest in Southeast Asia. Uh, they they just knuckled down and got it done, didn't they? I agree with that. So those were the three big stories, I would say, from, from a, a year ago. That was Thailand, Singapore, and Cambodia. But there were other announcements as well, not on such a grand scale. Malaysia and Vietnam were probably two of those. Malaysia had, I mean, we'd, we'd had just an incredible lockdown here. D- domestic travel had been off radar, had been banned really for eight months until September 2021. Then the island of Langkawi was reopened as a pilot travel bubble for domestic, for residents of Malaysia who were vaccinated, you could go to, to Langkawi from, I think it was the 15th of September, 2021. Um, but that was all that was really available. And then slowly other destinations around the country were reopened to domestic travelers, but international travelers were locked out until November, where there was another pilot scheme, wasn't there, Hannah, on the island of Langkawi? Yes. So I think this one was very much inspired by the Phuket Sandbox. So they had their international travel bubble to Langkawi. Um, so that launched 15th of November. It you know, launched as a pilot scheme initially for three months. And the whole idea was to you know test out safety and then look at rolling that up to other destinations. But it was still fairly restrictive, you know, had to be fully vaccinated. Okay, you needed to stay for at least three days into Langkawi. 
take an RT-PCR test before arrival, have travel insurance for a certain number, um, and needed to take uh, a test on arrival as well. And that that varied depending on whether you were, um, how long you were staying. If you were staying more than five days, you needed another test on day five, or you could do a rapid test if you landed into KL, if you were in to Langkawi, an RT-PCR test. And I think it didn't really work out so much, right? I, I think that there was some traction, but the overall feeling was that it wasn't a particularly successful scheme. No, I don't think it was successful in terms of tourism numbers. I think, again, it helped Malaysia to, to work out its protocols. Um, the problem with Langkawi is it doesn't really have any direct flights from, from many destinations around the world, so you had to come in by and transit at KL. I was in, I was in Langkawi last Christmas, and I did speak to a few people that were on this program. I think I've mentioned this on, on the, the podcast before, but most of them were either grandparents or, or, or relatives of people, foreign uh, residents in Malaysia, and it was their first chance to reconnect. So they were all having a holiday up in Langkawi. But they did say two things. One, there was a lot of testing. You had to do quite a lot of regular testing, uh, I think, for the first five days that you were there. And it was incredibly expensive because you, they, you, your only options were to book through designated travel agencies and tour operators in uh, Langkawi and of course the prices were elevated quite high so it, it served a purpose in terms of reconnecting people that mostly lived in the region but also I think it helped Malaysia to actually uh, test its protocols and then when it reopened in Malaysia relatively it's been quite smooth over the past few months so I think that that might have helped in that regard. Yeah definitely it was interesting because some of the other I mean Malaysia still made plenty of announcements about opening during November so you know early November they made an announcement that Malaysia and Indonesia had agreed to open up a VTL between KL and Jakarta and KL and Bali, but they never released the details and that kind of fizzled out. You know, they, they think they announced at the beginning of December, oh, maybe we'll open this in early 2022 because, you know, we've got some technical issues and we've got to try and integrate into one another's apps. Um, we've got to mutually recognize one another's vaccines. And there was some talk that it was in talks with Brunei to open up a VTL, but, you know, hadn't been finalized yet. So really at the, the time, like you say, Gary, the, the only big movement for Malaysia for international travel really was right at the end of the month with Singapore. And obviously that was the massive one. Um, and this Langkawi international travel bubble. Yeah, agreed. So we're running out of time. There were other um, announcements around the region. One was the Philippines announced quite a, a liberal reopening, but then it, it did roll back on that as soon as Omicron came. But Vietnam, I think, was quite interesting, Hannah, because Vietnam did, did something similar, didn't it, to, to what was what was done in Langkawi? Yeah, so it, it had its, its uh, Fukuok travel bubble, essentially. Um, but it was very, very limited, you know. It was that they really had to book with certain agents, um, they had to only stay in designated resorts as well. So it wasn't really open to the free market. I think you, you really, you had the feeling it was mainly geared towards certain groups who were coming in. And in fact, you know, international commercial flights only really restarted from the 1st of January 2022 to destinations like Tokyo and Seoul and Bangkok and Singapore and so on. So, you, you know, it, it was very limited again. Yeah, totally agree. So I think looking back, Hannah, looking back over the last year since all this began to happen, I think two things become apparent. One is that obviously this was the time when things started to move. But one year later, I think it's shown just how complicated and how slow moving the actual full reopenings have been. It, you know, I think there was this anticipation, particularly in the travel industry, that things would just 
fall back into place quite quickly. That obviously hasn't happened. And at this time, you know, this week in particular, where there's huge rumors flying around, un, unverified, but speculation that China is going to reopen at some point, um, maybe after March next year, that at the moment is very hard to second guess, but the indications are that something is going to happen. And so I think we'll start to see this general optimism again. It will, you know, China will be back to the rescue. It will start um, generating more outbound travel. But as we've seen over the last year in Southeast Asia, things just don't happen that quickly. And whether the learnings from this year will mean that things are a little bit more faster in terms of China's reopening, if that does happen. But having said that, looking at what's happening in Northeast Asia, in Japan, in Taiwan, in those markets, still slow, isn't it? It's still taking time to rebuild. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that point. Yeah, you know, when you the, the real learning is that it was very quick to shut the borders and very, very, very slow to reopen them. And there's just all of these levels of government. I mean, and we have always said that, I think, Gary, even right from the beginning, that, you know, there's just going to be so many, there were so many complications. First of all, it was all about, you know, what vaccines have you got and are you fully vaccinated? And eventually, you know, we think maybe it will shift to, you know, having to have that third dose, perhaps for some countries, maybe not for others. And it just becomes increasingly, increasingly complicated. But overall, you know, as as I say, I still feel a huge amount of um, optimism now, I think, for Southeast Asia. We have really gone through all of this, this labyrinth of of travel requirements and slowly slowly it's all been unraveled to what is now fairly straightforward to to travel you know when you okay arrive into Singapore just need to fill in an online arrival card okay well I mean you used to fill in a physical one now fill in a digital one and add the vaccination certificate details that's not such a big deal right that's that's fine but the challenge ahead is still when's China going to reopen yeah and we will talk about the challenges ahead for 2023 in one of our upcoming podcasts, Hannah. But that's, that was an interesting look back at, at one year ago. You know, in some ways, those 12 months have gone quite quickly. But then we actually look at what actually has happened across those 12 months. Huge, huge changes in everything, in, in, in travel, in economics, in the global situation. Everything has changed. But it was, I thought it was interesting just to look back, Hannah, where we'd come from and where we were hoping to go, go to one year ago. Yeah. Absolutely. So I hope you listeners enjoyed that too. Um, And that brings us to a close of this week's show. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts on comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. We're both heading in different directions over the next couple of weeks. I'm off to Hokkaido tomorrow night to uh, do an inspection trip ahead of this Adventure Travel World Summit for next year. And Gary is preparing for a super long journey via Taipei and Seattle to Phoenix, Arizona in the US for the Focusrite Conference. So we'll be back a little bit later in the month to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia with you then. 